Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting January 16th, 2008. I'm Steve Mursky. Last week, the mind of a monkey in North Carolina controlled a walking robot in Japan. The mind that created interfaces between intelligent beings and robotic limbs belongs to Miguel Nicolelis. Scientific American editor Christine Suarez recently sat down for a conversation with Nicolelis in his office at Duke University, where he's the co-director of the Center for Neuroengineering. They talked about the organic robotic neurointerface research and its implications for prosthetics, as well as some exciting plans for a grand sociological experiment in Brazil, the creation of an entire science city. In 2004, you gave a really impressive demonstration of how your work could lead to prosthetics controlled by the brain. Uh, your star monkey, Aurora, learned to play a simple video game with a joystick, but you were also essentially downloading the neural signals from her brain to control a robot arm? Yeah. In essence, what we were doing was to record the brain activity that Aurora was producing to generate arm movements. And after a little bit of training, who, uh, both Aurora and I, uh, uh, we were able to basically uh, get these signals to be decoded in real time and translated into digital commands that could be used by a robotic arm to generate movements that Aurora was imagining. So at a certain point, Aurora realized that she didn't need to move anymore. She could just imagine the movements. And this interface that we created, the, this brain-machine interface that we created, was able to enact her will and generate the movements that she needed to produce to win the video game. So this could really be an example of how uh, the language of the brain can be translated to move a prosthetic for a person who's paralyzed? Yeah, that was one of the ideas. Uh, first, we were interested in understanding how this language of the brain is produced and what is the code. And that's what we were doing at that time. And we, we learned that by using these simple algorithms, we could read these signals and, and control a, a mechanical device. So that opened the, uh, the possibility in the future for uh, patients that are paralyzed to use their brain activity to directly control a variety of devices. So it's some very fundamental neuroscience questions that you're answering, but also with some very practical applications. Yes. The, the, the idea was to design a paradigm that could uh, handle both issues. How do you address fundamental questions about how brain circuits operate, and how can you actually use this knowledge and this information and technology developed to address this issue to generate some practical application? Right, and how have you been following up on the Aurora performance? <laughs> yeah, well, we have now used the same idea to study other types of behaviors, for instance, locomotion, and we have learned that we can do the same. We can reach signals from uh, motor and sensory areas in the brain that are involved in the generation of the motor program to walk. And we're able to read these signals, decode them, and send them to a, a device, a robot, a bipedal robot, that actually starts walking like the monkey. And we are planning to do now a series of experiments that will demonstrate the power of this, this interface by getting the monkey not only to control in real time this robot that uh, is not going to be here in the United States, it's going to be in Japan, in Kyoto, at the ATR Robotics Lab, but also get feedback signals from the robot back to the monkey to see how the monkey interpret the, the fact that she is now or he is now controlling a device about, I don't know, 10,000 miles away in real time. 
That's pretty impressive. I think with Aurora, the robot arm was in the next room. Yes, we, the Aurora's arm was next room. We had done experiments in, in before Aurora with a couple other monkeys in which one robotic device was at MIT while the monkeys were here in Duran. So we learned a little bit about how to do that. The challenge here uh, with this collaboration in Kyoto is uh, much larger because we are talking about uh, a lot more information being transmitted and is different from the experiments we did in, in 2000 with MIT. This is now going to be a bidirectional connection. So uh, it will be really a blend of uh, the monkey's brain with this robotic uh, device. Right. You're going to be feeding sensory information back to the monkey. Yes. We're going to get uh, sensors that are uh, located in the legs of, and feet of this uh, robot to send feedback information back to the monkey and we are going to give the monkey uh, uh, an opportunity to, to, to experience what it is to control a device that is in a different continent. That's incredible. We'll look forward to seeing those results in that video. <laughs> yeah, that would be fun. <laughs> um, you're also working on counteracting the symptoms of Parkinson's disease, or at least understanding them. Yes. We, we in collaboration with uh, the lab of a good friend of ours in Mark Rome here at Duke, we uh, have actually looked into the brain of transgenic animals that Mark created that can uh, do, you know, to certain manipulations that it can induce, both first genetic and then pharmacological, uh, you can actually produce symptoms that are similar. Uh, some of them are similar to what you see in Parkinsonian patients. And you can treat these mice and actually get these, uh, these mice every day to express these symptoms and recover. By recording the brains, you know, since they're normal until the moment in which they become Parkinsonian, we actually learn what happens in that transition. And since that transition happens in 45 minutes, you know, every day, we actually accumulate a lot of information on how a normal brain evolves to become Parkinsonian, or at least Parkinsonian-like. And now we realize that there are ways to... Uh, measure in uh, this uh, brain activity, in, in, for instance, in the motor cortex, and, and, and find that these cells are becoming more synchronous. They're firing more together than they used to be, almost like a mild seizure, a mild, mild epileptic seizure. It's not a seizure, but uh, the, the synchronous firing resembles that. So we start testing a lot of ideas now on how to treat that. And we are just finding that we may have an, uh, an opportunity to desynchronize these neurons and get these animals to, to uh, improve. And that's what we're studying right now. We're trying to come up with um, uh, methods that to some degree link this research to the prosthetic uh, research uh, to desynchronize these neurons and get the, the, the mice to be, you know, to be able to move and to get rid of these Parkinson's symptoms uh, by doing so. So that's, is there a common thread in all the different things you're working on? Yeah, I think the common uh, thread of all these uh, stories is the attempt to understand how the brain works by looking at the population uh, level, at the neuronal circuit level. I mean, of course, we have been devoting, uh, neuroscientists have been devoting almost a century of work to understand how single neurons operate, uh, the physiology of single cells. But uh, what we realized lately in the last couple of decades is that to obtain behaviors, to generate behaviors, the brain uh, uh, basically needs to uh, recruit populations of neurons distributed across many structures that come together for a moment in time to generate an output. And actually, the, the game seems to be there. You know, So what we have been doing uh, 
in all these lines of research is to focus on the operation, the physiological operation of circuits, not single neurons, uh, and try to understand what are the emergent properties that come from the combination of hundreds of cells at once. The whole system. The whole system, yeah. Instead of just looking piecemeal one at a time, or each structure of the brain at a time, we want to uh, basically measure and quantify the operation of the whole brain, or most of it, as it happens. You know, in the little, in the case of the motor control, in those 300, 500 milliseconds that precede the onset of movement, uh, we really want to do how, want to see how the circuit comes together and generates the, the signals that are required for, for movement to, to, to emerge. And you're not just doing this at Duke. You actually have several labs around the world, right? Yeah, we, right now we, we have like a network of laboratories that we have uh, established uh, to, to work on these projects. We have a laboratory at the uh, Cal Polytechnic Federal de Lausanne, uh, EPFL. Uh, uh, we have in, in, in Switzerland that is doing some work like that in locomotion in rodents. And we have two laboratories, two major laboratories in Brazil, one in Sao Paulo and the Sierra Lebanese Hospital that is participating in a collaboration with us. And, of course, two laboratories in, in Natal, in the northeast of Brazil, where we are creating an institute, an international neuroscience institute. Right, and that's happened pretty quickly just in the past few years. Yeah, this basically this, this idea of creating this global network of collaborators and labs uh, is basically unfolding in the last three years, three, four years. In particularly the Brazil effort in the last four years. Yes, it's uh, you just inaugurated earlier this year a school and a health clinic and the institute itself, the research labs. Yeah, so because the, the institute in Brazil, the Edmund and Lily Safra International in, in Neuroscience Institute, is basically a, a, it's not only about neuroscience, it's not only about doing research like we do here at Duke or in other institutes around the world, it's about using science as an agent of social transformation of a community. And so in addition to uh, creating a neuroscience institute that is linked to the best neuroscience institutes in the world, uh, we created uh, the first science education school in Brazil for children that is now enrolling 800 kids from uh, the worst school district in Brazil, or one of the worst. Uh, hopefully by the end of the year we'll have 1,000 kids uh, participating in this after-school science education program. We just completed the construction of a women's and child clinic that is next to, to that uh, school to basically also act on translating all sorts of ideas uh, in medicine and in, in, in neurology to healthcare services to the community. And now we are starting the construction of what we, we like to call the campus of the brain that will consolidate all these activities and, and create uh, the whole mission of the institute. Talk about the area where you're building this. It's a very poor region in northeastern Brazil. Uh, why did you choose that area? Yeah, that, that is a very important part of the whole project, is the idea that by taking science or a big scientific project to a part of Brazil that was underdeveloped and that had not received the attention that other regions of the country had in terms of scientific investments, we could actually test this notion uh, that science can be a driving agent of transformation, not only economic transformation like we know here in the United States and Europe, but also a social transformation, that the values, the ethical, the ludic values that scientists apply to their daily life could actually be 
used to drive a whole educational program, a whole uh, healthcare program, and even a self-sustainable economic model that has science at the core and the values of science as the philosophy and that will you know, help define this scaffolding of a development plan. So it was an experiment. It was a, almost like a sociological experiment. How, could science go there, get roots, and in working with the community, help develop uh, a series of fundamental issues like education and, and healthcare to a community that had not been uh, in the radar screen you know, of, of uh, science in Brazil. So not just a self-contained institute where science is going on, but where it really actually affects the community and, and benefits the community. Yes, the idea is an is a open institute, an institute that has porous walls where the knowledge that is being generated inside can easily migrate to the outside world and reach uh, the public education system and the healthcare system uh, and the economic uh, development uh, planning of the region and transform the region in, in a magnet for knowledge-based initiatives. And that involves everything, you know. And, for instance, we're going to have the first school in Brazil and probably one of the first in the world where kids go to school before they're born. Their mothers go to school. They return to school. And when their kids are born, they're enrolled automatically in a, a fellowship that we're calling um, a fellowship for life. They get a fellowship to, to be in that school from the early age all the way to the end of high school with a very empirical science-based curriculum guiding the whole education process of these children. And the goal is not just to maybe train some future scientists, but also to have that way of thinking basically benefit them no matter what they do in life? Absolutely. Uh, we, the ambition is not to create a, a factory of scientists. The, actual, the, the, the goal is to allow these children to become critical thinkers and to develop their potential, whatever potential is. In fact, um, we are creating a school where kids... Uh, they have, you know, normal health, and kids that are disabled in any way uh, study together. They're in the same classroom, and they they are basically s- developing at their own pace to reach whatever potential and dreams they have, whatever they are. So we just want to in- instill in them uh, this idea that you can touch the impossible. No, you know, you can really pursue it. You may not even get there, but you actually the pursuit of it is a great adventure, whatever you want to do in life. Just giving them the opportunities. Yes, to give you the, the tools and the opportunity to, to flourish. You know. The next stage in the process, uh, you want to see a biotechnology park built around this area. Uh, yeah, in, in, a, in our attempts to develop a self-sustainable business plan for, for this uh, project, we thought that the first uh, major step after the construction of the institute and the establishment of the social programs was the elaboration of a plan in which science, that, uh, not only the science that is produced in the institute, but science, high-end science, could be used as a way to generate wealth that could sustain all these activities, the basic research and the social programs. So we're working in close collaboration with the Brazilian government in the state of Rio Grande do Norte, where Natal is located, to elaborate um, a whole set of bills that will uh, create a free enterprise zone in that area, which is strategically located. You know, Natal is on the northeast, uh, close to the equator, the tip of Brazil, northeast tip of Brazil. So 
is the closest point to Europe, the United States, and Africa. So the federal government of Brazil is investing in creating a huge uh, cargo airport and a harbor there. So what we want is to create really a, a city of science, a park, a free enterprise zone in which you can bring uh, companies, both big and small, to produce products, scientific products for uh, exporting. And surrounding this, you can create a service park that can allow a, a bi-directional interaction between the free enterprise zone and the city of the brain uh, of Natal in a way that you actually allow the community to benefit from the, the, the creation of this such a mega structure, uh, industrial structure. So it's almost like the Research Triangle Park here in North Carolina, but with a social mission. It's something that is rare to see you know, around the world. That is the difference. Uh, there are quite a few cities or you know, communities that have been built by governments based on technology and science, but that is the difference in this one, is the connection to the community, building a community at the same time. Yes, and basically allowing the, the community around the, you know, the uh, Natal, uh, the outskirts of the city, to, to take advantage uh, of that, both economically and socially. You know, is and is a is a is a as I said a bilateral interaction where science we can show to society that science has many more benefits than IP in in creating a business. You know, you really can use science for many other things. One of our goals, once Natal is built, is to clone it, to clone it among other areas of Brazil, and hopefully, if the experiment works, to to take it to other places in the world. Now, pretty soon you're going to be addressing some very prominent audiences, the World Economic Forum in Davos in January. Uh, at Davos, I think I'm going to talk primarily about the model of doing science, uh, how you can today uh, really have a global lab, and, and not only one lab, but how uh, institutes and countries can belong to networks that can maximize tremendously the resources available to produce science, and basically connect the best minds uh, uh, in a field or in a discipline uh, almost instantaneously to work together in projects that can really transform uh, society. And I think that's the future of science, is a, is a global uh, science, you know, is a science without frontiers. Uh, this is already part of the history of science, of course. Scientists perhaps were the first ones to, to, to propose that globalization was a good thing, but uh, now we can see clearly that uh, this may be the best business model to do science. So I want to, at Davos to present the, the idea of the network of institutes in Brazil and how they could be translated into a network of institutes around the world, which we are already starting in neuroscience, but could be much bigger than that. Good luck with all of it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Christine Suarez's article on Miguel Nicolelis and the efforts to create science cities is called Building a Future on Science. It's in the February issue of Scientific American and at our website. The website and February issue also include a commentary by the president of Brazil, Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, co-authored by Nicolás and Fernando Haddad, about Brazil's plans to promote national development through education, especially science and technology education. That opinion piece is called Brazil's Option for Science Education. 
And for more on the World Economic Forum, which starts next week in Davos, Switzerland, just go to www.weforum.org. And check out Larry Greenmeyer's January 15th news article on the monkey robot research. It's called Monkey Think Robot Do, and it's at our website, siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one. A new study shows that the lower your cholesterol levels, the easier it is for you to put on muscle mass while exercising. Story two. An octopus in an English aquarium has a new favorite toy... Mr. Potato Head. Story 3, also from England, Manchester is considering allowing the heat of bodies burning in crematoriums to be used to heat the rooms where families and friends of the dearly departed gather. And story 4, people who tasted the same wine in two different glasses thought one tasted better, the one they were told cost more. Time's up. Story 4 is true. When people thought a wine was more expensive, they rated it as better tasting than the exact same wine that they thought didn't cost as much. Brain scans found that the taste center of the brain acted the same in both cases, but the pleasure center lit up more with the allegedly more expensive wine. For more, check out the January 15th episode of the Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science. Story 3 is true. They are considering using crematorium heat to also warm up the family members of the deceased. The hot gases that usually are released into the environment would be captured to heat up radiators and leave a slightly smaller carbon footprint. Story 2 is true. Lewis, the giant Pacific octopus, loves to play with Mr. Potato Head at Nuque's Blue Reef Aquarium in the UK. According to BBC News, the 18-month-old octopus apparently likes the colors, shapes, and movable parts of Mr. Potato Head. Lewis may outgrow Mr. Potato Head, though. The giant Pacific octopus is the largest octopus species and can be more than 30 feet across. All of which means that story one about how low cholesterol levels make it easier to gain muscle mass is totally bogus. Because a study from Texas A&M University found that lower cholesterol levels can actually reduce muscle gains from exercise. The study was done with men and women in their 60s. Those with higher cholesterol levels gained more muscle mass and strength. The researchers think that cholesterol's contribution to inflammation, which is bad around the heart, may be good for helping muscles recover from a workout. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Siam Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com and check out numerous features at the new siam.com website, including Ask the Experts, blogs and opinions, and slideshows and videos. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. My only song,